If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. I'm very excited to bring you this podcast because it's all about sugar and the perils thereof, but also what you can do about it. The book is entitled Sugar Proof, The Hidden Dangers of Sugar That Are Putting Your Child's Health at Risk and What You Can Do. And our guest is Michael Gorin, Ph.D., He's the co-author of the book, along with Emily Ventura. Uh, he is really wonderfully situated to write this book because he's a professor of pediatrics uh, at USC, University of Southern California, program director for diabetes and obesity at the Sabin Research Institute, uh, co-director of the USC Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute, uh, and uh over the last 30 years, his research has focused on the causes and consequences of childhood obesity, which is a big, big problem. And uh, his book uh, is a wonderful deep dive into this subject. Uh, parents, grandparents, you got to get this book. I mean, it could just could really be a critical uh, life-saving intervention for your kids and your grandkids. Uh, so what prompted you to write Sugar Proof, Dr. Gorin? Yes, uh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction and for having us on the show today. It's really a um, pleasure to receive the invitation and to be able to be here today, so thank you. My pleasure. So, yeah, the, 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 there, there were several different motivations for writing the book, one of which was, as you mentioned, so I've been at the forefront of this research for 30 years, and there's a lot of important stuff happening in research, and we have a lot of great tools and essentially I wanted to translate those for 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 the general audience of families everywhere because not just that obesity is a big problem but kids nutrition is a big problem where kids are surrounded by sugar 70% of processed foods have added sugar 80% of kids snacks so we're living a real life candy land almost every turn we're making every place kids are going they're presented with more opportunities for sugar so i wanted to make that science more generally available we had lots of kind of aha moments that we can talk about that kind of brought the story together and we wanted to make these tools generally available there's a lot written about sugar 
not a lot of it is about kids and it's all kind of spread out all over the place. So we also wanted to have a comprehensive one-stop shop of the science and the how-to all in one place. Well, indeed, you, you brought it all together uh, in this book. Uh, and when it comes to the effects of sugar, we know that there's uh, an epidemic of obesity uh, among young kids. More and more kids are, are weighing in as uh, overweight or obese, uh, something that is historically without precedent. Uh, but what other uh, consequences are there of excess sugar uh, consumption because you actually cite uh, some examples in the book of kids who seemed ostensibly, you know, normal weight. Uh, you know, maybe they were just a little chunky, but they just seemed, you know, like husky kids uh, who actually had pretty profound problems related to sugar. Yes, and th- this this the effects of sugar on kids' bodies can essentially run from head to toe throughout the body and have different effects in kids' bodies than adults which we can also talk about in more detail, and that's because sugar affects development, affects developing organs in different ways that we talk about in the book. And, and these, these could be kind of external outward problems that would be more obvious, like ex- excess weight gain or tooth decay, but also a lot of under-the-skin, slowly evolving problems like long-term risk for chronic diseases uh, like type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease and cardiovascular disease, which are long-term chronic diseases but are all seated in childhood, if not before, actually also during gestation. So these are all almost asymptomatic and don't show up until young adulthood or later adulthood, but they can all be tied to excess sugar and that kind of slowly developing chronic diseases all begins in childhood. And then there's the other developmental aspects such as effects on learning and memory and even academic performance, kind of more subtle effects that you might not be necessarily medically concerned about. But there is evidence suggesting, for example, that excess sugar consumption in childhood relates to uh, compromised academic function on standardized test scores. And, uh, you know, conditions like attention deficit disorder, uh, sleep disturbances you describe in the book as well, childhood uh, depression and anxiety may be exacerbated by uh, being on a blood sugar roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Some of, it's very hard to draw a direct line in terms of um, cause and effect of sugar, but certainly sugar is associated with those conditions and, as you say, can exacerbate those uh, situations as well. And it all be a lot of it ties to what we describe as the sugar roller coaster, which is the natural ups and downs in blood sugar that occurs when you eat a high sugar or high carbohydrate meal. And kids aren't able to regulate sugar as well as adults. So helping them regulate blood sugar as best you can through what they are fed can be very helpful to try and stabilize that blood sugar level. So what insights have you gained as founder of the Childhood Obesity Research Center at USA looking at kids? Are, are kids presenting uh, in in clinics uh, out there in Los Angeles uh, with uh, fatty liver, with a type 2 diabetes, uh, with problems that previously we thought 
only adults were susceptible to. Yeah, we, we unfortunately see a lot of those kids in our clinics, at Children's Hospital, and in our studies that we perform uh, there as well. Uh, I mean, these are fatty liver disease wasn't even a disease 10 years ago in adults or children. Most liver disease was caused by excess alcohol. But now most fatty, most liver disease, most fatty liver disease is related to uh, sh- sugar consumption and fructose in, in particular, and it's now called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is increasing rapidly in children and adults. It's a very serious problem. Uh, left unchecked can result in liver damage and ultimately uh, need for liver replacement. Same is true for type 2 diabetes. The age of onset is becoming younger and is now, when I started in this research in the 80s and 90s, there was no observation, there was no records of type 2 diabetes. used to be called adult onset mm-hmm. diabetes. AODM, we just yeah. simply abbreviate it uh, that way because it was, you know, children would get type 1 diabetes, you know, the autoimmune type, and then adults mm-hmm. later on, if they got fat, you know, they would get the type 2. Well, that's now around the year 2000, in the early 2000s, we started seeing uh, increased reports of type 2 diabetes in children and teenagers. And, and now it's increasing uh, rapidly and pre-diabetes as well, which is kind of the subclinical prerequisite of type 2 diabetes. And now estimates suggest that one in three children born today will get pre-diabetes, and that would be one in two for Hispanic children and African-American children. Yeah, and apropos of that, you know, COVID-19 is shining a, a spotlight on inequities uh, in healthcare. Uh, and uh, the uh, what is said to be structural racism, you know, a societal imperative uh, that puts minorities at higher risk of COVID-19 and other uh, what are called NCDs, non-communicable diseases, you know, these degenerative diseases, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease, and so on, on and on. And is... Uh, is what you're finding, uh, and you know, you work at USC because I, you know, I'm from Los Angeles. USC uh, hospital system uh, deals with you know a, a very diverse population, you know, affluent mm-hmm. kids, but also kids in the inner city. Are you seeing this as a phenomenon that's related to uh, poor diets uh, that may be uniquely associated with uh, economic disadvantage or cultural factors uh, or just food deserts? Yeah, it's all related. Some of it's hard to tease apart, but for sure, our research over the years uh, has shown major economic disparities in childhood obesity. For example, in Los Angeles, the rates of obesity in children are seven times higher in low-income neighborhoods versus more affluent neighborhoods. And you know whether that's to do exactly with Food deserts and poor diet is hard to exactly tease apart, but that's certainly a major candidate. And and the the other aspect of it often overlooked, also coming from some of the research we've done in those populations, is that the Hispanic children and African-American children, for example, are more insulin resistant than uh, Caucasian children. And we don't really know the reason why that is. And there may be a genetic programming that's part of that. It could be genetic. It could be just underlying physiological 
differences in how body fat is stored and where it's stored. For example, Hispanics tend to accumulate a lot more liver fat, and fatty liver can contribute to insulin resistance. Uh, that's just one clear-cut example. So, um, And then kids going through puberty are also more insulin resistant. So the more insulin resistant you are at an early age, the more likely you are to be hyperglycemic, and the more hyperglycemic high blood glucose you have, studies show you're more at risk for COVID complications. So some of this may explain why these uh, by Hispanic and African-American children are at higher risk for COVID complications. So unfortunately, it is all related and can be explained partly by physiology and partly by environment. Well, right. There's that nature versus nurture uh, argument, uh, genetic programming versus epigenetics, the shaping by the environment. Uh, and is it possible that, uh, you know, certain uh, uh, groups or certain uh, nationalities or certain families have what are termed thrifty genes, and they may thrive under conditions of, uh, you know, lots of physical activity and relative deprivation. But when they, uh, you know, arrive on the threshold of the 21st century, you know, with abundance and, you know, lots and lots of devices to uh, constrain your physical activity, uh, and now with COVID-19 lockdown, things are worse, um, that it kind of makes, uh, makes them more vulnerable to the effects of all that excess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the same principle really for sugar. And, it, and the, the perfect storm for sugar is kind of along those same lines. And that is a combination of three factors. First of all, in babies and kids have a higher preference for sweetness. It's just something we're born with because mm-hmm. it was it was supposed to be protective for, from an evolutionary perspective. It was supposed to favor liking of breast milk, which is great, and it still does. It's a survival it also, mechanism. It's a survival basically. mechanism. It's also supposed to deter um, kids from crawling around on the forest floor and eating something toxic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the protective mechanism, but that's backfiring in today's environment. And this is true for all infants and all children, regardless of economic group or ethnic group, is that kids aren't crawling around in the forest floor. They're crawling, you know, they're, they're in the grocery store, which... <laughs> in the grocery is, store aisles. They're in the, they're <laughs> yeah. in the shopping cart grabbing for the uh, Count Chocula. Exactly. Exactly, seven and seventy percent of what they grab for, uh, and eighty percent of of foods specifically targeted to children because the food industry knows this, and so they specifically design foods to have more sweetness because they know kids will want will like it and want more of it. So that's what they're grabbing for. So that's the first two: built-in preference for sweetness and an environment that's loaded with sugars. But then the third aspect is their physiology, and that's this to me was the big aha moment, um, was the way different sugars are interacting with fundamental aspects of growth and development that cause uh, lasting problems in in the body. And I can, I can you know we can talk about specific examples, but those are the the three major elements of what we call the perfect storm. There's a new. Uh joker in the deck of cards, which is uh, fructose. Now, fructose is is ubiquitous in the environment. You know, you get some fructose when you eat an apple. You know, fruit is a natural 
uh, source of fructose. Uh, but fructose is appearing in the human diet uh, only as of the past uh, half century or so, and it's uh, making a colossal contribution to the caloric uh, uh, quotient of children, right? And and it has unique yes. properties as opposed to even, you know, classic Coke, regular glucose or sucrose. Yes. So, the, so just a, a quick, a quick fundamental on, on, on sugar chemistry, just because it's important to know the differences. Sucrose, which is regular white sugar, is a molecule of glucose connected to a molecule of fructose. Uh, fructose is the main sugar found in fruit. Um, but in what the studies are now showing is that high amounts of fructose, especially when it's uh, in high amounts and in free form, not the kind of form you would get from eating an apple. So eating an apple which is high in fructose is perfectly fine because there's a smaller amount of fructose and it's released very slowly. Mm -hmm. But when you drink a glass of apple juice or drink a glass of soda made with high fructose corn syrup, it's a very different scenario. There's a ton more fructose, and that fructose is free in solution. And what the research is now showing us is that under those conditions, the fructose overwhelms the normal metabolic capacities because we weren't built, as you said, we weren't built to expect large amounts of fructose coming in in free form. We were designed for small amounts coming in from natural fruits. So... Listeners are probably familiar with high fructose corn syrup, which is now used as the main sweetener in most sodas. But that's not the only high fructose-based sugar. We're now seeing a bigger proliferation of other fructose-based sweeteners, such as fruit juice concentrates, mm -hmm. apple juice concentrate, grape juice, evaporated grape juice. These are just basically... And they sound natural. They sound, I mean, look, they sound wholesome. And it's a, yeah, right? and it's a great... It's great for the food industry because they can sell those as healthy-sounding sweeteners. But, in fact, those are nothing more than high-fructose syrups from fruit. So it's basically just taking this the, the liquid out of fruit and boiling it down. The same way as you would make sugar from cane juice, it's just making sugar from fruit juice, the same basic mechanism, just boiling it down to create the sugar or the sweetener. And again, in large amounts, in free form, very problematic for a number of different reasons. And so for me, the realization was not just that kids are consuming more sugar, but they were consuming different types of sugar. And it's different types of sugar that are problematic for growth and development. And what's interesting is that, you know, I think a lot of people recognize that sugar is not great for you. So they may not use, you know, the uh, the sugar shaker uh, or the sugar bowl on their uh, breakfast table. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, the revelation in your book is that uh, there's so many Trojan horses for sugar. Uh, in fact, it's difficult to go to the market and obtain a product, products designed for kids that doesn't have some added sugar. Right. Yeah, like I said, if you just randomly select it from the, gro from the grocery aisle, uh, 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 products would have some form of added sugar, and the food industry has gotten very clever at disguising them, like we just said, with healthy-sounding names. or break. It used to be that people would just look at the first two ingredients and look for sugar, mm -hmm. but now, now the food industry will use multiple types of sugar, 
so they can break it down and kind of bury it in the ingredient list in lower amounts. So consumers have to be really savvy um, to look on the ingredient list to see to see what's there. And oftentimes they can be billed as healthy sounding sugars. So got to be really careful. And and if we can identify, and part of what we're seeing in sugar proof is we just need to kind of, it's easy to, you can learn to identify and substitute those hidden forms of sugar. Let's say, whether that's your peanut butter that you, that you regularly use mm-hmm. or the pasta sauce or the salad dressing. It just takes a little bit of, of detail to find an alternative product that does not have the added sugars. And that it's in itself can be very helpful and go a long way into reducing your, your sugar footprint. Exactly. What we want to do is, I mean, we're not talking about an absolute prohibition. I mean, kids are kids and birthday parties being what they are and, you know, school outings and so on, uh, if they ever resume. But um, what we can do is we can, uh, you know, exert some discretion when it comes to selecting products uh, that are, you know, within our family's control. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. uh, Kids can kids can utilize. Um, You talk in the book about, you know, that it really starts early pregnancy programming of childhood sweet preferences and obesity. So so it actually matters when you're pregnant what you eat. It can influence the child for, for a lifetime. Correct. As well as when you're when you're breastfeeding. So I mean I'm a big you know breastfeeding obviously is critically helpful and important if you if you're able to but what, what what you're eating and drinking while breastfeeding can also make make an impact. So it's not trying, you know, the intention is not to shame anybody, but to be aware um, that there can be transmission of sugars uh, during pregnancy and during lactation, and basically can so that that that, pre, that that preference for sweetness that babies are born with, basically studies show that that can be amplified and ramped up. Hmm. So. You can basically kind of highlight that, and and, and 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 babies will be born with an even higher preference for for sweetness if they were exposed in utero or during early feeding. And this doesn't—it's not just you know breastfeeding. Obviously, there's transmission, but now there's formula as well. You have to watch mm-hmm. out for formula because a lot of formula now can have uh, added sugars or things that are disguised which shouldn't be because breast milk has a sugar it's called lactose right but yeah. there's no there's no fructose or, or sucrose in human breast milk i mean unless it's transmitted because a person has high blood sugar uh, so yeah so lactose is uh, another sugar that's similar to sucrose it's two sugars joined together it's glucose again joined to galactose, a different mm-hmm. sugar. So there's, as you said, there's no fructose naturally in breast milk, but our research shows that some of, if, if the mother is drinking high fructose beverages. Like a, like a sodas, that, you know, like a, you know, having a Coca-Cola, yes. which is a double whammy because it's a lot of caffeine as well. <laughs> right? Yes. So our research shows that, that the fructose can be uh, transmitted into the breast milk and therefore uh, into the infant, so uh, and and there's ways you can you can still have hydration and beverages, you know, if you are lactating or pregnant, but just watch out for the fructose content in particular. 
Indeed. Because the, the glucose is not transmitted in the same way. It seems to be specific to fructose. Okay. All right. Well, look, we've laid down the, the groundwork for our discussion of the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk. The book is entitled Sugar Proof. And in part two, we're going to talk about sugar proofing, what you can do as parents and grandparents to have an impact on your child's health. It's not too late to turn things around. The horse is not out of the barn uh, on uh, preventing your child from succumbing to the uh, very, very serious uh, lifetime effects of excess sugar consumption. Uh, when we return, uh, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Michael Gorin. He's a PhD professor of pediatrics in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California with uh, a lifetime uh, of research on the problems of childhood obesity and diabetes. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. 